Welcome to the podcast of the First Baptist Church of Dumas, Texas, featuring biblical teaching and preaching from God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word. If you live in the Panhandle area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to see you at First Baptist Church. We meet every Lord's Day for Sunday school at 9 a.m. and morning worship at 10.30 a.m. We also have midweek discipleship opportunities for all ages on Wednesdays. For more information, visit us at fbcdumastx.com. That's fbcdumastx.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Now open your Bible as we explore God's Word together. You can open your Bibles this morning to Hebrews chapter 4. I'm going to read a few verses from the reading that Brother Stan did in Luke 24. So if you want to have your your finger there in Luke 24, that's fine. It'll just be a few verses. Primary message today will be in Hebrews chapter 4. It is that time of year again. It's ascension time. I know all of you are singing your ascension carols and the ascension traditions, and everyone has an ascension roast in the oven when you go home, right? No, of course not, because we don't even know really what that is anymore, do we? If we think about it, we have Christmas, we have Easter, we say, well, these are big, important events in the life of Jesus and the life of the church, the birth of the Savior, his resurrection, we go through Holy Week and Good Friday and remember his death and the institution of the Lord's Supper on Maundy Thursday and all these are wonderful, big events in the life of the church and we do take time to step back and pause and to remember and to celebrate and we should, but it doesn't stop with his resurrection. There is this event that we read about today called the Ascension, which is a pretty big deal in the life of the church and the ministry of Jesus. I think we're so often, seeing to, so often used to seeing it in movies and, and shows about the life of Jesus, and it's sort of a nice dramatic finale to, to the story. Right, Jesus comes, he lives, he dies, he, he, he rises from the dead, and then he ascends into heaven and the angels sing, and the big title, The End, comes across the screen, but it is not the end. This is just the beginning of this ministry of Jesus on our behalf at the throne of God. Yes, the ministry of the atonement is complete. Nothing needs to be added to the work that Jesus has done on the cross. He said it is finished and he meant it, but this is just the beginning in a different way of a new ministry for Jesus, and it's good for you and it's good for me that we remember what the ascension is all about. If you want to follow along with me in Luke 24, I'm just going to read those last four verses, verses 50 through 53. It will be on the screen. We won't spend too long here today just to refresh your memory from what Brother Stan read. Luke 24, verse 50. Then he led them out as far as Bethany. Lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven, and they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. Before we get to our primary text today, I, just, I had one point from this story so we get our minds around the actual event of the ascension. Number one, we have a new reality. I think our familiarity with the story does us a disservice because, of course, we know how this ends. He dies, he's risen, and he ascends, and that's the end. And we're very used to the story. We're very used to the pictures, the paintings, the artist's renderings of all this. 
And it's hard for us to understand the confusion of the disciples, maybe watching this. If you remember from a few weeks ago, we looked at Acts 1. We looked at Acts 1, verse 6. Jesus is about to ascend. All of it's done, and the disciples say, okay, Lord, now is it time for you to restore the kingdom of Israel? Is all that happening right now? And so you can understand their disillusionment, maybe their confusion, when instead of restoring the kingdom of heaven, Jesus says a few things, he blesses them, and then he goes up into the sky. Right? There's this confusing moment for the disciples to think, well, now it's time to go. Now it's time to restore Israel. Now the real mission begins, and Jesus leaves. Now, Luke tells us they worshipped him. I imagine they would if he had just ascended in front of their face, right? I imagine they would worship him, and they go back to the temple, and they're in the temple daily praying and blessing God. They're there at the temple to pray. They're there at the temple to wait. They've heard the mission. All the gospel accounts and the one extra in Luke, in Acts, I'm sorry, that Luke writes that we looked at a few weeks ago that Dr. Greenway reminded us of last week say, go. You have a mission to go make disciples, to go be my witnesses, to go preach the gospel to every creature, Jesus says in the gospel of Mark. They know the mission. It's been repeated time and time again for them. So what are they supposed to do now that Jesus leaves? He's told them to wait. The Holy Spirit is coming. The power is coming. They're going to go on this mission. Oh, and by the way, I'm leaving. It leaves the question for us, for them, certainly. What about Jesus? Why did he leave? Don't we need him for this mission that we're going to go on for him? John 16, verse 7. Jesus has told them in the upper room that he would be leaving. And he tells them there in the upper room that when he leaves, it will be an advantage for them. It will be better for you that I leave. You you might be echoing the confusion of the disciples. How is it better that Jesus leaves? Don't they need him? Don't we need him? How does Jesus say, I am with you always, even into the end of the world, and then leave? How does he say it's better for me? What advantage is this for Jesus, the Lord, our Savior, to leave? Jesus here says it's to your advantage that I leave because if I don't, the helper, the Holy Spirit cannot come. And you need the Holy Spirit to come to receive the power you need to do the mission that I'm sending you on. So Jesus leaves so that the Spirit of God might come. I don't know who said this, just know it's not original to me, but some theologian, some preacher somewhere said, the Holy Spirit inside of you is better than Jesus beside you. It might be a head-scratcher for just a moment, but it's exactly what Jesus says right here in John 16. It's better that I go away so that the Holy Spirit can come. Because if I just stay here with you, the Holy Spirit will not come and fill you with the power that you need to do the mission that I'm sending you on. The Holy Spirit inside of you is better than Jesus beside you. So as Jesus departs, unnerving as it may be, this is not the end of the story. It is only the beginning. The beginning of a new mission for the disciples and the beginning of a new ministry for the Lord Jesus. So now let's turn our attention to Hebrews chapter 4, 
The text in your bulletin is wrong. That might be my error. Hebrews 4, the verses are Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. We see this new ministry of Jesus here. Let's read these three verses together. Hebrews 4, starting in verse 14. Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and grace to help in the time of need. Jesus' new ministry here in verses 14 through 15. Notice the language from the very beginning in verse 14. Since we have a great high priest. It recalls, obviously, the Old Testament priesthood. Those of you who have just trekked through 12 studies of Leviticus with us, hopefully this is ringing some bells here, recalls the Old Testament priesthood, namely the high priest, the only one, who could enter into the most holy place, the Holy of Holies, and even then only once a year to make atonement for the people, to sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice on the mercy seat, to make atonement for their sins, and to be the mediator between the people and their holy God. The Old Testament priesthood was good. It was holy. But it was imperfect. And the author of Hebrews details this for us. If you look just a few chapters over in, over in Hebrews 7, Hebrews 7, we'll just read a few verses. Verse 11, now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, good, holy thing, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than the one named after the order of Aaron? If the first one had been perfect, why do we need another one? The first one must not have been perfect. Look at uh, chapter 7, verse 14. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. The Hebrew listeners listening to, Mo, uh, listening to the author of Hebrews talk about a priesthood, and if they say, well, wait a minute, you're talking about Jesus? Jesus the Messiah from the line of Judah? That is the tribe of kings, not the tribe of priests, which have been the Levites. The author of Hebrews says, ah, here's the thing. He has a better priesthood than the Levitical priesthood because his priesthood goes back to Melchizedek in the book of Genesis. And it's superior to the Levitical priesthood that God establishes later. He is the perfect that was the imperfect. Look down at chapter 7, verse 23. The former priests, the Old Testament priesthood, they were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. The Old Testament priesthood was good and holy, but it was imperfect because the Old Testament priests were mere men and they were limited in their humanity by their sin and by their death but not Jesus. Jesus, the author of Hebrews says, is a great high priest, a better high priest. He is not, number one, limited by sin. In our text today, Hebrews 4.15, it says he was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. No need to atone for himself. No need to purify himself before he goes in and atones for the people. He was sinless, unlimited by sin. 
He wasn't limited by death as the Old Testament priests were. Romans 6 verse 9 says Jesus died and he has been raised to life. And what does it say? Never to die again. Lazarus was raised from the dead. He went on to die again. Many resurrections in the Bible have a person being raised temporarily from the dead only to die again. But Jesus is the first fruits of the ultimate resurrection and that he is raised from the dead never to die again. So he's our great high priest, unlimited by sin and not limited by his death. Look how the author of Hebrews puts it in Hebrews 7 verses 24 through 28 following this talk about the imperfection. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. The Old Testament priests must enter again and again and again and again. It says they stand continually in their place of service because the sin is continual, their sin is continual, therefore the sacrifices must be continual. And so they stand again and again, day after day, making sacrifice, making atonement. And then what? Well, the priests themselves die. And they must be replaced again and again and again and again. But Hebrews 1 verse 3 tells us that this one, The Lord Jesus, after making purification for sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. His work accomplished. His job done. And now he remains there forever for you and for me. But where? That's all great news, but where did he go and what is he doing? Hebrews 4.14 tells us he has passed through the heavens. This is the language of the ascension. That's what the author of Hebrews is talking about, his ascension. He passed through the heavens in a literal sense. But there's another picture here too. This is the language of the priest. Passing through the veil into the Holy of Holies. Except this is no type. This is no symbol. This is no shadow. This is the real thing. The tabernacle, the temple, the priesthood, the altars, the sacrifices, all good and holy. God established them for a time, but they were but shadows of this. And every time the high priest on the Day of Atonement passed through the veil into the Holy of Holies with fear and dread as he made atonement for himself and then for the people, every time that happened, it was pointing to this. 
when the great high priest, Hebrews 10 verse 20 says, would make a new and living way through his own body. Not a shadow, not a symbol, but going into the very presence of God. Here is the real holy of holies. Not in a secret room, in a tent, or a building somewhere behind a veil, but the very presence of the glory of God. He doesn't come by the blood of bulls or goats or sheep. He comes as one pure, innocent lamb by his own blood. He doesn't come to an earthly temple or an earthly veil, but his own body is the veil that is torn. His own sinless life is what is given. This is no earthly, mortal high priest, but a sinless, eternal high priest who has passed through not an earthly veil, but has passed through the heavens. Remember the psalm from earlier, the question, who can ascend the hill of the Lord? And who dares go into the Lord's presence except he that has clean hands and a pure heart? And here he is, the perfect, sinless, spotless Lamb of God. And Hebrews 7.25 says, there he is, always, ever living to intercede for us, passing through into the real holy place, passing through into the presence of God by his own sinless blood to mediate and to intercede for you and for me. He has passed through there. I I don't know when the first time that someone said this to me, it might have been in Bible college or sometime, it just struck me as so unusual, confusing, but someone said, Jesus is praying for you. What though? That's odd. You know, I ask other people to pray for me. When we have prayer requests, we ask so-and-so to pray for us. You might text your Sunday school class or me or someone. We pray for people on our prayer list. Someone has said, hey, pray for me. Pray for this person. And so to hear the, the, the idea that Jesus is praying for us, I don't know if it hits you as unusual this morning. Maybe you've never heard that before either. But that's exactly what it says when it says he lives to intercede for us. And he is there at the right hand of God the Father, interceding and praying for you. Not some half-God, half-man hybrid that sort of understands what you're going through and sort of understands your temptation, but he was made truly man and was, as the text says today, in every way tempted, tested, and tried just like you and just like me, except one exception, he never sinned. He is there as the perfect God-man, able to sympathize with you in everything. Having experienced your weakness, having experienced your frailty, your suffering, yes, even having experienced your death. But unlike us, in the Old Testament priesthood, he was completely without sin. Pure, holy, and righteous. 
Lastly today, this gives us number three, a new confidence. Verse 16 of Hebrews chapter 4 says this, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. If he is there as our mediator and as our representative, you can understand this call for confidence. If he is there interceding for me and for you, you can understand why the author of Hebrews is bold to say, you can then with confidence draw near to the throne of God. You can, as verse 14 says, hold fast to the confession of your faith. You can, as Hebrews 12:1 says, keep your eyes on Jesus because where he is is where your salvation is. Our eyes are so tempted to look to ourselves. Whether it's our sins, whether it's our shortcomings, our weaknesses, our suffering, our circumstances, our feelings, and oh, how tempted we are to look inward. I don't feel very saved today because whatever it is. I don't feel like I'm being made into the image of Christ today because of whatever it is. I don't feel so certain about my eternal destiny. I don't feel so certain about, as the song said, my future is heaven. I don't know if I feel that today because of my sin or my circumstances or my weakness or my failures. But if we would stand still and look for our salvation, for our assurance, and the ups and the downs and the highs and the lows and all the despair and all the hopelessness that we can find in ourselves, if we will but look to Jesus, instead, there we will find perfect, constant, faithful, sinless righteousness that stands on our behalf before the throne of God. And to know that he has passed through and stands there for you and for me, pleading. Wesley said, five bleeding wounds he bears, received on Calvary. They pour effectual prayers. They strongly plead for me. Forgive him, oh, forgive, they cry, nor let that ransomed sinner die. We may have trepidation, we may have fear, we may have doubt, but here we have an invitation to confidence. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19 We have this invitation, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, we have confidence through his blood to enter the holy places. Verse 22 follows up, Hebrews 10, 22, says, let us draw near with a true heart, a full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled. There's that image of the priest in the Holy of Holies sprinkling the mercy seat, sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Our confidence is there in him, in ourselves, never. 
But through the perfect life, death, and ministry of Jesus, there is confidence. And if you notice, it's how the author began this section in verse 14. Since we have that high priest, let us then with confidence draw near. Jesus came as God's representative to reveal God to us. John in his gospel says, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God, the word became flesh. And in John 1.18 it says, no one has ever seen God, but the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. He came as God to reveal God to us. He becomes one of us to bear the curse for us. Text today says he was made like us in every way. He goes to represent and plead for us to God. He comes as God to reveal God to us. He comes to us to take our curse upon himself. And now he goes to God to represent us before God. Jesus Your advocate has gone there. And because your mediator and your advocate has gone there, and because he pleads your salvation, you can know with confidence that where he has gone, you can go also through him. And this is central to the whole thing. This is the gospel. Union with Christ. That when you come to Christ in faith, you are united to his death so that there is no more death for you. His death is counted as yours. You are united with Christ in his burial and that your sins have been carried as far as the east is from the west and God remembers them no more. You are united with Christ in his resurrection that as he lives, you also will live. Today I want to remind you that you are also united with Christ in his ascension. That where he is, you will be, listen, and you are also. Look with me quickly to Ephesians chapter 2. If you want to turn over there. I love hearing the sound of those pages, Russell, but it is on the screen. And it's on the version notes if you're using the app. Ephesians chapter 2. I saw someone this week post that if you are preaching on the ascension, preach from Ephesians. Uh, Option number two was preach from Ephesians in Greek. And option number three was also Ephesians (laughs) because of this text right here. Look at chapter two, verse one of Ephesians and just listen. We're just going to read this. You were dead in your sins and trespasses in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. Now watch this verse. And raised us up with him 
and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Even when we were dead, we were made alive and not just made alive, but raised up and seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Look over at Colossians chapter 3, just four verses, and this will be on the screen too. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. There's the ascension. He is there, exalted, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above not on things that are on earth, for you have died in Christ and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And so when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Do you see the glory of this salvation? Not just that Jesus has done his part, And now you must do yours. That is not the gospel. If anyone tells you that is the gospel, they are presenting a false gospel and it's to be rejected. It is not that Jesus has done his part and now you must do yours. No, but Jesus' perfect work is completed and he takes his victory with him. And if you are in him then by faith, his victory is your victory. Here is your confidence today. Not just that Jesus is there pleading on your behalf, that's wonderful news, but that because of your union with him by faith, listen, you are there with and in him. Your salvation, your identity, your hope, your joy, your peace, what did Paul just say? Your life is hidden with Christ in God. Paul talks, you hear the, the, the wording Paul used, he talks as if it's already done. It's already settled. It's already accomplished. There's nothing left for you to add, to mix in, to make up, or to do. It's done. It's not something that you did way back when that just happened to take. It's something that Jesus has done on your behalf and has been applied. Something that Jesus is doing right now something that belongs to you right now because you're in him. My salvation, your salvation this morning is secure. Not because of you and not because of me, but because of the pure, spotless, perfect Savior. And he stands there right now before the throne on my behalf and on your behalf, pleading his own life, his own death, his own blood, his own wounds. There is your confidence and security. Keep holding on. Keep fighting. Keep going on. Hold on to Jesus because the good news of the ascension is he's the one that's holding on to you. Here is the reality of your hope today. The ascension Jesus, our high priest, has gone before the very glory of God. And he has taken you and me there with him. That is our hope, our salvation, and our joy forever. Unbeliever, 
You're here this morning and you've not trusted in Christ for your salvation. Unbeliever, you're here struggling with your sin, maybe. Struggling with guilt. I don't know what to do with my sin, my guilt. I acknowledge that I messed up, but I don't know what to do about it. Eternity is in the balance for you this morning. And the question for you is, unbeliever, where will you look? And what will you do? And the good news for you today is that you can stop looking at yourself. You can stop looking in the mirror every morning and telling yourself that if you want to get to heaven, you just got to be better and do better and try harder. You can know this morning that your salvation is secure because of him and his life and his death and his burial, his resurrection, and yes, this morning, his ascension. Believer, believers struggling this morning, listen to me, struggling with your assurance, struggling with doubt, struggling with hopelessness, pain, circumstances, whatever it is. Maybe you're here this morning as a child of God, your faith is in Jesus, you've been saved, you're tossed by sin in this moment. You feel your own weakness. You keep succumbing to the same temptation and the same doubts. You look at your life and you look at your progress in holiness and you're discouraged. Where is the victory? Where is the joy of the Holy Spirit? And maybe believers, believers this morning, maybe you're looking to the wrong place. Because you, just like the unbelievers, keep looking in the mirror every morning a spiritual mirror, and you keep telling yourself, just do better. Just try harder. What's wrong with you? Don't you understand? Don't you get it? When the entirety of the gospel says, turn away from yourself and look to Christ. Behold him there, the risen lamb, your perfect, spotless righteousness. He is there for you. Look to him. Go to him. Your life is there. In the miracle of the incarnation, what we celebrate at Christmas, the incarnation, just God becoming a man in the, in the person of Jesus Christ. In the miracle of the incarnation, God comes to reside with man. Christmas. God with man now resides. God comes to reside with man. In the ascension, man goes to be with God. Because just as Jesus, when he became a man, did not cease to be God, he did not become something less than God when he became a man. He was now God, man. And just like he became a man and did not cease to be God, when he ascends to the right hand of the Father, he doesn't cease to be man, but holds his humanity, glorified humanity, with him forever and forever as the God-man. Jesus did not stop being God in Bethlehem, and he does not stop being God now at the right hand of the Father. And again, another pastor somewhere said, and these things just come to my mind and I put them down. It's not original to me. Said, 
when we cross over into heaven, it will be a human hand that greets us. How, how pressing for us this week, for this past year, past couple years, so much death, so much suffering, even in our own church body, so many prominent members now with the Lord. We think this week of 19 precious children taken from us, two teachers. I don't know where the teacher's faith was. I don't know where their destinies are, but I can speak confidently on behalf of the children. I can speak confidently on behalf of those believers that we've lost in our own congregation. This is a comfort to us today. That when we pass through the waters of death, it won't be some disembodied God who we can't see and we don't know that welcomes us. It will be the human hands of Jesus. He is forever there on our behalf The hymn says, and at last, and at last, our eyes shall see him, and our hands will touch him. That's the glory of the ascension. What assurance, what confidence, what hope. He has passed through the heavens, and we will too. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Do you have those clean hands and that pure heart through faith in Christ today? Or do you need to bow before him as your Lord and Savior for the first time and say, my hands are filthy. My heart is dirty. I need a new heart and I need clean hands and only you, Jesus, can give it to me. Come to him in faith and repentance today, unbeliever, and know this assurance of eternal life. Know this promise can be yours today through faith in him. Believers, hold fast. Keep fighting. Keep going with your eyes fixed on Jesus. Let's pray. Thank you, our God and Father, for the beauty and the glory of this doctrine, this lost, forgotten doctrine of the ascension. We thank you that through our ascended Lord, we have a high priest who is at your right hand, even right now, pleading and praying for us. We thank you that he has gone there as one of us to pray on our behalf, to plead his wounds and his blood on our behalf. God, this morning, if there are unbelievers here that need to come to faith in Jesus, I ask that you, by your Holy Spirit, would draw them, would convict them of their sin, would convince them of their need for a Savior, and would bring them to faith and repentance today. For believers that are here today, God, fill us with a sense of confidence and hope, not in ourselves, but in you. Knowing that even today, we can, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, to find grace for whatever help we need today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about what it means to follow Jesus as Lord, you can email us at fbcdumas at hotmail.com. It's fbcdumas at hotmail.com.
hotmail.com. You can also reach us by phone at 806-935-5604. We'll see you next time.